Hey, I want to say hello to Maple Grove and our campus there and all the people worshiping our Maple Grove campus. Would you give it up for Maple Grove? And in Maple Grove, give it up for Spring Lake Park. We'll have a party going on between the two of us. It's good to worship together every single week. And I can't wait till next week, uh, Father's Day weekend, I'll be uh, preaching again. It's been a few weeks since I preached a sermon here. You better watch out. I might like have three sermons all rolled up into one. I don't know. Can't wait for next week. And uh, hey, I'm looking forward to Father's Day. It's one of my favorite days of the year. It's my favorite title of all the titles that I have is being a dad. Um, but we all can serve under and live under a good, good father. Amen. And uh, so we can celebrate the love of Father God next week. And don't miss it. This coming uh, a week, as you are preparing for your life, I want to encourage you to continue to dive into the book of Philippians or the letter to the Philippians. How many of you have your Bibles? Just put them up in the air. Let me see. Even the electronic versions, all right. The Bible's a really important thing. It's not just something that the preacher's supposed to read. It's something that you're supposed to read. In fact, turn to the person next to you and say, he's talking about you. And uh, as we go through Philippians, this series is called Prison Break because Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from prison. And of course, we have the prison cell on our platform, and uh, this represents a cell from which Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And one of the things about this series that we want you to consider is Paul was not just writing to the Philippian church, but he was writing to Emmanuel, and he was writing to you. And you can receive encouragement as you read through. So I want to encourage you, read through Philippians every week if you can. As we go through this series, we're going to be embedding our story in the book of Philippians. Today we have the privilege of having an amazing communicator, Susie Larson. Why don't you come on up here, Susie? And uh, Susie... Susie is a, a prolific author. In fact, we've got her books out in our lobbies in both of our campuses. She didn't want to bring them in because this is our home church. This is the place where her and Kevin worship every weekend that they're not on the road and they minister in conferences around the country. She's a respected communicator, uh, sought after person to go after people. She, she loves people, so she goes after them from the pulpit and from the pen as she writes. But here's what I want you to consider today. This is a message to our house from somebody in our house. And, uh, and she has other messages. So I asked that we have the resources available on both campuses. So please make sure you go by the table. And it's in lobby number two in Spring Lake Park. It's in the main lobby in Maple Grove. But go ahead and get one of the books. I got one I just grabbed, Your Sacred Yes. Um, she's got a new book coming out. When? in August that you're going to want to read. And I, I think it's a, a message that God has put in her heart for all of us. Most importantly, today, I want you to know as a pastor that I bless the ministries that you have outside of here. And I'm not talking about just full-time ministry people. I'm talking about whatever job God has called you to, that's your ministry. As a pastor, you come in here on the weekend and I get to preach the word and I get to share with you. But I want to, I want you to know it's just as important what you do on Monday. And and for Susie and for Kevin, their jobs are outside of here. She's on the radio on KTIS. She's got her own show and she's around the world. But I bless them. And when they come in here, I want them to receive ministry. And today, this is the only exception to the rule. You are allowed to give ministry on this day. Would you give it up for the great Susie Larson?
Nobody's ever called me the great Susie Larson before. <laughs> I kind of liked it. Anyway, so glad to be with you. Honored to be in the house, I got to tell you. And I want to give a special shout out to our dear pastors, Nate and Jody. We are so blessed. These two are the real deal. They love this flock. They love this city. And they love the kingdom of God. And they give mercy, uh, just joyously, graciously. And I'm just wondering if we could give them a round of applause. But... Thank you so much. And if I could push you a little further, I challenge you to write them a card, send them on a date, give them a gift card out to dinner, do something like that, just because uh, so oftentimes pastors have to give so much more grace than they receive. They absorb a lot. And so just to let them know you're praying for them, you love them, appreciate them, goes a long way. Also, a big shout out to Maple Grove. How you doing? Let's, can we clap for them one more time? Yeah. Pastor Nathan, you killed it last weekend. It was fantastic, fantastic. Love that guy. Love his preaching, and I love his humor because it's so understated. I told him I have to listen so closely because I don't ever know when you're going to crack a joke. I mean, I like a drum roll right before I'm about to be funny, so you see it coming, you know? But he just he gets it in there, and he's hysterical, and he's got such good content. So bless you, Pastor Nathan. Well, my message this morning is about how to find your song in the night and how to find your footing in the storm how to find your song in the night and your footing in the storm. And it's hard to believe this when you're in the middle of a trial of suffering, of utter hardship. It's hard to believe that God could turn that thing around to the point that your trial serves you well, that that trial, that storm eventually pays tribute to your soul. But it is possible. When we're trained by the storms that we go through and we are teachable and humble and we're tenacious when it comes to holding on to the word of God, our trials will serve us in the end. They will pay us back in the end. And that devil will be sorry that he ever messed with us. Isn't that the goal? One of them anyway? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you, God, for this beautiful, precious tribe of yours. And I pray, God, would you honor us, Lord, with your presence. You are the guest of honor. Would you come and then keep coming? Would you minister in the deepest, most profound ways, the way that only you can, the only way that you do, Father? Untangle fears and hurts and insecurities. Open eyes of the blind. Unstop the ears of the deaf. Take out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh. Awaken us, God, to your presence, your promise. I pray you deliver the depressed, heal the sick, bring the prodigals home. Those who are out of sync, bring them back in rhythm with you again. Those who are weary and well-doing, give them a glimpse of your favor and your glory. Thank you, Jesus, that your promises are true for us. And as we sit here in this beautiful sanctuary with full freedom to worship without fear for our lives, we remember our persecuted brothers and sisters. Lord, we remember the millions upon unfathomable millions who sit in slavery and human trafficking. And we ask you, God, bring your fist down on the wicked. You say in the word that you will cut off the strength of the wicked and increase the power of the godly. Do that, God. Set prisoners free. Heal these dear brothers and sisters of ours. Put a song in their heart and mobilize them for your name's sake. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, God in heaven, be acceptable in your sight. May your kingdom come and will be done in this place. Have your way in us, O oh God. Give us a vision for what is possible when we stand in faith. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. 
You know, my hubby and I love the prison break series idea because it's really freedom is what motivates so much of our ministry. And uh, I've got to tell you, we've really learned just by my own process. I mean, my dear husband married a broken winged bird, you know, 30 years ago. I had a lot of freedom to contend for because I was so captive on so many levels. And so not only has he seen what God has done in my heart, but we see as we travel around the country how many Christians are living who are going to live and die and realize I was saved, but I wasn't free. And yet it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I remember one particular time in my early years as a mama, and I was battling Lyme disease, which wiped out my short-term memory. So I would literally read scripture, have notes in the margin, go back the next day to look at my writing and have no memory of reading that passage of scripture. The medical debt that I was causing because of the disease turned our finances upside down. Our house was falling apart. We were this close to losing our home. I was in my 20s, and I felt like I was in my 90s because of this health. I had three little boys who were a party waiting to happen. I thought I would be swallowed alive by fear and anxiety. I did not think that I would make it. And different, thank the Lord, different friends from church would bring by meals. But if I had a dime for every person who went before they left said, oh, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. And I'm like, okay, thanks, bye. Thanks for the tater tot casserole. And that other thing isn't helpful at all. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm and someone says, oh, well. I, it wasn't helpful to me. And I thought, this is more than I can handle. When they would leave, I would stomp in my living room and say, if that's true, I think you might have me mixed up with Susie Larson in Cincinnati because <laughs> this is more than I can handle. I mean, it was just beside myself with fear, anxiety, worry. And I remember one day, the Lord whispered to my heart. He said, Susie, I know you're afraid, but you have to turn your back on worry to behold faith, and you have to turn your back on faith to behold worry. I've given you authority, so take it. And I remembered a verse that it was memorizing just to get my brain back, Luke 10, 19. It says, for I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them, and nothing will by any means injure you. So there I stood in my little broken down house with my broken down brain and body, scared out of my mind. Our finances were in utter disarray. And I had legitimate reasons to fear and to worry. But I stopped my foot and I said, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over this worry. And I put it under my feet. And I behold faith. Because God, you are who you say you are. And you will come through for me. And your promises are true even when they don't feel true. And I felt peace flood my soul. And I knew this stuff was true. I knew his, his word is true. And I experienced something so supernatural in that moment. That place, that story where our story began is where, I, where God really forged a faith, a feisty faith in me. Something that I learned is that if we coddle our fears and our disappointments more than we cling to the promises of God, we'll never break free. If we coddle our fears and our disappointments more than we cling to the promises of God, we will never break free. So what does it matter if we contend for our freedom? Does it make us more saved? Nope. Does it make us more loved by God? Absolutely not. We're saved by grace, and nothing can ever separate us from God's love. So why bloody our hands on the promises of God in the fiercest of storms? Because our captivity totally disrupts our influence, our credibility, and our fruitfulness. The stuff that people most often stumble over in us are those places that are captive. Those are the places we sin out of. Those are the places that we numb our pain out of. Those are the places where we practice excess. 
to not have to deal with what's going on in our lives. We make rules around our fears and our insecurities. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the thing is, people are watching you. They're watching me. They're watching us go through the storm, and they're wondering, does he really believe this stuff? Does she really believe this stuff? And as they watch you contend for the freedom in the midst of the fiercest storm, and they see that you actually do believe this stuff, they'll think for themselves, maybe this could be true for me as well. What's amazing to me is that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians from this place, from prison. He wrote a joy-filled, fruit-filled, encouraging letter from in here. And he says in the book of Philippians that his chains, his captivity served to let everybody, lots more people to know about the saving power of the gospel. In other words, his captivity, one thing he said is death for me means life for you. So in his place of captivity, the kingdom purposes moved forward. Isn't that amazing? In his place of captivity and the way that he stewarded his own storm, people identified him as belonging to God. And in his place of captivity, many other believers in his proximity became bold and fearless in their faith. And some, as, as Philippians says, out of jealousy. Imagine that. They were jealous of a man in prison. And this is proof that you can't blame your circumstances for your lack of fruitfulness, for the lack of the presence and the power of God, because nothing can hold us captive when Jesus has set us free. So in this place, the way Paul stewarded this cell, the kingdom purposes moved forward. People knew he was connected and linked in fellowship with God, and many more became bold in their faith because he was bold in his. So what do we have to do in our storm so that same thing can happen? You know what I mean? So that more and more people, by the way we steward our storm, learn about Jesus and the saving power and think for themselves, this has got to be true. How would we steward our storm so that people go, I know her, she knows God, and he knows her? How can we steward our storm so that others, when they watch us, became more, become more bold in their faith? I always say, heaven knows who's who in the zoo. Heaven knows who has faith and who doesn't. Here's a question for you. Are you going through a storm or do you love someone who is? I'd just love to see a show of hands. If you're going through a storm or you love someone who is, you are not alone. Right now, we are in a season of sifting and shaking. And the Bible says things are being shaken so that which cannot be shaken can be clearly seen. And this is what happens in a storm. The winds blow, the waves lap up against us, and we want to grab for something to anchor ourselves to. And this is really important in a storm. The storm reveals the lies that we believe, and it reveals the truth that we need. So when we look around and we look at what's shaking, instead of trying to clean up the storm, we look for what's not shaking. What's not shaking? God's love. Never will I leave you, he says. His promises, his presence. His goodness, his grace, your heir status. And maybe your storm is sickness or a loss of a loved one, job loss, financial difficulty, rejection, infidelity, betrayal, prodigal. What do we do? Well, in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, it says this. This is what Paul writes. Always be full of the joy of the Lord. I'm going to pause right there. Always, he tells us, from prison, always be full of the joy of the Lord. Well, the Bible says elsewhere that in his presence, the fullness of joy is found. It also says the joy of the Lord is our strength. In his presence, the fullness of joy is found, which implies we've got a choice about the story we tell ourselves in our suffering. 
Always be full of joy, the joy of the Lord. I say it again, Paul says, I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. You think he was considerate in prison? I think he was. Remember, he says, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that you can comprehend or understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you trust in him. That word guard translates garrison or stronghold. Imagine the peace of God creating a holy stronghold to protect your heart and your mind in your storm. Always be full of joy. Pray about everything. Turn your back on worry. Lay hold of his promises. Stand in faith. Be considerate. You know, so often when we're in a storm, we think we're absolved from being kind and considerate. Like anything goes, because I'm suffering. Now, there's grace for the suffering, but it matters that we steward our storm in a righteous way. And when we walk through these hard times, we've got to make the distinction between surrendering to our circumstances and surrendering to God in our circumstances. Very different. Surrendering to our circumstances is saying, you know what? This always happens to me. I must be a have-not. God must not like me. We'll never get out of this financial difficulty. Surrendering to our circumstances is letting your current storm define you. Surrendering to God in your circumstance is to say, this thing does not define me. Nobody's appointed to live and die forever in the valley. I passed through the valley. This thing doesn't define me. I'm passing through. There's a next place of promise for me. God's promises are true, even when they don't feel true. He defines me. He decides about me, and I'm passing through. That's surrendering to God in your circumstance, keeping your eye on the prize, going, this is temporary, and I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When we surrender to our circumstances, you know what happens? Our own words bear witness against the promises of God. We speak against the promises of God because we defy what he's already said about us as if we believe that his promises aren't true for us. But when we surrender to God in our circumstance, we believe and therefore speak. Amen? Amen. It matters the story that we tell ourselves in the storm. Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, they worshiped. They were freer than their captives because they had the power of the Holy Spirit alive in them. Joseph of the Old Testament, unrighteously, unjustly accused, a slave, a prisoner, but was more fruitful as a prisoner than his brothers were as free men because he knew how to honor God in every situation. One of my faith heroes, Corey Tembu, in a Nazi prison camp, was more fruitful and free than her captors because she knew the love of God intimately. See, all these greats who've gone before us had their own storms, their own seasons where they were captive by literal circumstances. But they learned to surrender to God in their circumstances. They came through the fire without smelling like smoke, and they moved the kingdom purposes forward. Our circumstances don't hold us captive. Our perspective does. And here's the thing. Somebody's got to go to prison. Either us and our influence or the devil and his influence. Can I get an Amen. I thought that was a great point. Anyway. Oh, I forgot to tell you. I love it when you talk back to me. That doesn't apply to you, honey, but everybody else. Love it when you talk back to me. So I want to use the rest of this time uh, speaking about an acronym WISE because I think we need wisdom in the storm because the storms that we're in are preparing us for the storms that are coming. But we have to remember when the enemy comes in like a flood, 
the Lord raises up a standard against him. So that means overwhelming victory belongs to us because we belong to him. But this just doesn't come easy. We've got to tenaciously hold to the promises of God. And we need wisdom when we're unjustly treated, when we're betrayed, when we're rejected. We need wisdom. So the W in wisdom is to worship the Lord. My mentor often says, victories are won in worship. I want to say a word about worshiping the Lord for who he is and in spirit and in truth. The Bible says that the mountains melt like wax in the presence of the living God. That the earth trembles in his presence. At the blast of his breath, the bottom of the ocean can be seen. The Bible says that all of creation groans for the day that God reveals who his children really are. The earth responds to the presence of God. And if you think of the angels in heaven, they're surrounding the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. I want you to imagine tribes and tongues in every nation around the world, reverently, humbly saying, our Father, who art in heaven. And as you picture Jesus and him receiving the rightful praise that's due him, it's, ama it's amazing that we at times, not thinking about who it is we're talking to, run in and run out of his presence. I need a green light here, God. Hurry, quick, quick, quick. We forget who we're talking to. We're called to worship him for who he is. And when we, if you want to change your prayer life and your worship life, just pause for a moment and remember again who it is you're talking to. And then there's in spirit and in truth. And that means empowered by the Holy Spirit with accuracy about our lives. And oftentimes when we start to know our way around the church, around the worship songs, around the Bible, we get the lingo down. We go through the motions and we don't even realize it. But there's no cruise control for the Christian. There's times of work and there's times of rest. Never autopilot. Because when you go into cruise control, when you, disengage, when you go through kind of the motions, you disengage your heart. And when you disengage your heart, you disengage your faith. And when you disengage your faith, nothing happens in the spiritual realm. So when you worship in spirit and truth, it's like you're bringing honesty about your story, accuracy about your story. Now, oftentimes when we're worshiping, it happens to the best of us. We start going through our laundry list or our grocery list in our head. You know, our minds wander. That's a distracted life. We just bring it back because your worship matters so much to God. But sometimes the issue is even deeper and it's a duplicit life where you're living one way and singing another. And this is why Jesus said, my worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth. God knows all about you, all about your story. He loves you. And nobody can transform your life like his, like him. So when you're singing a worship song, I put my trust in you. And you engage your soul and your faith. I put my trust in you. And you worship him from that place, something changes in the spiritual realm. Because your worship, your words, your prayers, you're so spiritual, heaven moves on your prayers and your worship. But when you disengage your heart and kind of go through the motions, nothing happens. It's like disconnecting the electrical circuit. Worship him for who he is in spirit and in truth. I is identity. Apprehending your identity through intimacy with God. It's wise to worship God in the storm. It is wise to get a firmer grip on your identity in Christ. Jesus paid a high price for your identity. And something he showed me in those early years because I was such a poster child for fear and insecurity is that insecurity is just another form of selfishness. Making decisions with me and mine because I'm constantly trying to dig myself out of a hole. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. As Elise Fitzpatrick once said, anything that needs to be said about you has been said by Jesus, period, end of sentence. 
Who will accuse the elect if the Lord has established you? No one. And remember, when I was in that place, back to that Lyme disease place, and I'm telling you what, I read the Bible regularly, I memorized scripture, I journaled, I prayed like a fiery woman, but I would get up from that place as insecure and fearful as anybody I knew. I remember crying out to God, going, where is the victory? Honestly, I don't know what more to do. I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm memorizing, I'm journaling, I'm giving, I'm serving, but I'm still the same scared, insecure person that I was before. What's, where's the victory you're talking about, Lord? And he whispered to my heart in a way that changed my life. He said, I get that you love me, but you don't seem to get that I love you. So until I tell you different, every time you want to say, I love you, Lord, I want you to turn it around and say, you love me, Lord. He said, say it now. And I said, you love me, Lord. And it felt like a foreign language. And I would yell at my kids and then feel so bad, and he'd say, say it now. And I'd go, even here, you love me, Lord. And I would do something good, and he'd say, say it now. You love me, Lord. And I, would, I will tell you, I, I sought out a counselor in those early years to sort through some of the things that were making me so afraid. But nothing healed my soul like the love of God. Nothing changed things for me like the love of God. And when we travel and I ask women to say, you love me, Lord, half of them straighten up like Stepford wives, like they're above that, like, oh, sorry, that's a little weird. But I'm saying if you feel awkward saying you love me, Lord, you need to do it twice as much. Because the Bible says it's not that we loved God, it's that he loved us. It's not how high we can jump, it's that he stooped down to make us great. It's ever and always about the love of God. It is. I really believe that the Christian life is not rocket science. We make it so difficult, but it's living in response to God's love. And I know for me, when my prayers and my gifts and my serving feel like I'm grinding the gears and they become ought to's and should do's and not a get to, it's because I've lost sight of the love of God and I get myself back into the presence of God and I'm like, remind me again who you are. He has such affection for you. He loves you so deeply. Graham Cook once said, God is not disillusioned with you. He never had any illusions about you in the first place. <laughs> Apprehend your identity through intimacy. It will change your life. The S in wisdom, in wise, is to stand on scripture. In the book of Nehemiah, excuse me, Nehemiah, we read about how while God's people sought to do the work of the Lord, the enemy stirred up trouble through other people to distract and discourage God's people. Does that sound familiar? Happens every day. Love this verse, Nehemiah 4.18. Each of the builders had a sword strapped to his side as he worked. And this is a visual for us. So often we leave our sword of the spirit under our bed on the nightstand, and we forget that we are armed for a purpose. And the Bible says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, I looked up the word living, and it translates this way, fresh, strong, efficient, powerful. This is not old news. This is now news. This is good news. And in this word is a promise that you can tether to, right, in the midst of your problem that's fresh, efficient, strong, powerful, and true. It's stronger than your circumstance. It's greater than your fears. Isn't that good news? The battles will come and go. God's promise and his word stands forever. So this past year, I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes look at some of uh, what our life is like on the road. So I work in radio full-time, and my hubby works in commercial construction as a project manager. And this particular event, so we travel on the weekends to these different events, and we were at lunch with the event host and the recording artist who was the worship leader. And we're having a great time. And the host very innocently said, 
well, I'm getting a lot of pressure from my bosses from here on in to get younger and younger speakers and younger and younger worship artists. And I inwardly winced inside for a host of reasons, <laughs> which I won't share right now, but I'm like, oh. And um, so I'm like, okay, but I'm here. Anyway, so we get back to the room and Kev went to set up the book table. And I don't know what happened, but I walked into our little room and there was a long length, full length mirror angled just so, so the sun was beat right, bright, shining off the mirror, and I could see every stinking wrinkle on my face. I mean, I'm like, <gasps> you know, I, I mean, I just wanted to go apologize to my husband. I'm like, is this what you see every day? I mean, I gasped, and I was like, I, honestly, I was like, <gasps> so I'm sitting on my bed going, and then thinking of her saying that over and over again, we want younger, and I'm like, I'm so wrinkled. So I'm sitting there, and my sweet husband comes in from setting up the book table and he plops on the chair and he's just sat heavy in his chair and I knew what had happened. And this is what happens to him almost without fail. Some dude will say something like this to him. Why don't you get a real job instead of working for your wife? Or why don't you get a real job instead of carrying your wife's bags? And I'm like, come on, I just wanted, oh, it makes me so mad. It makes me so mad. It's such a disrespectful thing, even if they're trying to be funny. And, uh, but the thing is, what my hubby does during the day, he's a commercial construction manager, as I said, and he walks on a job site, 150 guys stand up straighter. They respect him. He's my own personal Boaz, I like to say, because he has wisdom and humility and strength, and it's not unusual for him to be praying with another guy with a hard hat on, praying on the job site for a guy who's struggling. He's such an honorable guy. And on the side, he manages the business side of our ministry, fulfills all the web orders, sets up the book table, works at the book table, runs in, does the media, comes back out, does the book table, doesn't even, I mean, you can't believe what the guy does. He's superhuman. He really is. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I know, but, but so when a dude says like that kind of a thing to him, those are fighting words for me. He most of the times takes it in the chin, but once in a while, just kind of like, so he plops on the chair. I'm sitting on the bed and we're like, we're so old and shriveled. I mean, we're just like so depressed, you know? And we're like, we have an event to do. And we're like staring at each other. And uh, seriously, and I remembered a passage that I'd read on the plane. And this is a passage I've prayed for my boys Forever In Psalm 112, it says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights in his ways. His children will be mighty in the land, and generations after them will be blessed. I've prayed that for years for my kids. But on the plane, I read it in the New King James Version. And it says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights in his ways. His seed will be mighty in the land, and generations after. Now, I know it basically means the same thing, but I saw the verse from a different angle. Because lots of scripture... Uh, talks about he who supplies seed to the sower. We are sowers and we're sowing seed. And I just, I thought, this is, this is mine. And I hopped up off that bed and I said, we fear God. We delight in his ways. Our seed is going to be mighty in this land. And the generations after these women were going to be blessed. Amen. And he hopped up and we said, yeah, we put our foot down. And we said, we take authority over this dumb stuff in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. Honestly, I can't even remember a time that God gave me such firepower in my message. There was so much power. It was the presence of God. This was a multi-denominational event, cross-denominational. Women ran forward, went to their knees from denominations where that's not something you do. And they're on their knees. The presence of God fell in that place. Women were repenting of hidden sins and duplicit lives. Women were remembering sexual abuse stories that they'd stuffed and were getting free. Women were saying yes to Jesus for the first time. Women were reconciling, who'd had petty disagreements. It was absolutely amazing. 
We were so undone by that. And the host sat in the front row with her hands on her lap. And she said, this has never happened before. And she got up. She said, surely the Lord has been in this place. It was absolutely amazing. But here's the thing. Christianity isn't some hip social club and God will only use you if you can fit into skinny jeans. You know, it's easy to go that way because we've Americanized so much of our Christianity. It's not glorified high school where you've got the popular crowd and the unpopular crowd. The only haves and have-nots in the kingdom are those who have faith and those who don't. Those who fear God and those who don't. And there is no substitute for the power and the presence of God. So if you are 10 or if you're 100 and you fear God and you delight in his way, you can walk in his promises and in his power in a life-changing, community-changing way. Amen? Whatever you're facing right now, there is a powerful, living, active verse in scripture for you. And when we're walking through hard times, it's tempting to have a pity party. I had a few of my own with the cake and the hats and all of it, you know. But when we pity ourselves, guess what comes after that? Entitlement. I deserve. Someone once said, nothing will weaken you like the pity of a fool. What does the pity of a fool sound like in your storm? Well, I know your husband doesn't understand you, but God would really want you happy. So dump him and go find a better man. That's a pity of a fool. Or, man, you've given so much to that company. Surely you can take some for yourself. (coughs) Nothing weakens you like the pity of a fool. You don't need pity. You've got the power of God. You don't need pity. You've got the promises of God. Pity will lead you to entitlement and it'll lead you off the path that God has for you. It matters what you say about yourself and about God in the storm. It matters where you put your feet, where you stand. Though there's grace for us, we're not going to handle this all perfectly. It matters because how you fare here will determine how you fare there on the other side. You need wisdom in the storm. Worship God for who he is. Apprehend your identity and hang on and know it deeper. Stand on the power of the word. And finally, embrace eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18 says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. See, it's in the Bible. We're wasting away. We get wrinkles. It's not the crime. (laughs) Inwardly, we're renewed day by day. I love that. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's hard to imagine our troubles feeling light and momentary. If your spouse has cheated and walked away, if your business has gone bankrupt, if your son is in prison, it's hard. These are not light and momentary, are they? But the Bible says compared to the glory, yes, yes. Light and momentary compared to the glory. You have an opportunity here in this storm to engage your faith. And guess what? Your faith is more precious than gold. The storms reveal the lies we believe and the truths we need. And you have an opportunity. I want to show you a picture of my little baby sister. That's my dear sister and her husband who's right behind her and her four kids. And last summer, Donnie, her husband, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And he's fighting for his life right now. And if we don't get a miracle, he won't be with us very much longer. And this has been the most gut-wrenching painful thing because he's as much our brother as she is our sister. They've been dating since 15 years old. He's gentle and kind and true and an amazing guy. And they still have a high schooler at home. So we're just not ready for him to go. It's so devastating. But because of this long journey that we've been on, twists and turns and ups and downs, 
I've covered eternity a lot on my show because my boss always says, cover what you're passionate about. Well, I've been feeling very passionate about eternity lately. And John Burke is a reputable pastor and author. I had him on, and the book he wrote is called Imagining Heaven or Imagine Heaven. And he said he used to absolutely dismiss near-death experiences because they sounded so sensational. And when we'd hear people and their interpretation, it was not biblical. So he's like, I don't want anything to do with it. But when his dad was dying, there was a book next to his dad's nightstand that said something like Life After Life. And he started to read accounts of reputable people who'd actually had near death, not biological death, but near death, and they experienced something of heaven that he would find in scripture. So he spent the last 30 years researching and asking and interviewing tons of people who had these kinds of experiences. But he said, I interviewed people who had more to lose if they spoke up, like surgeons and scientists, academics, Muslim children. And he said, there are commonalities for those who have a near-death experience. Maybe their interpretation isn't always right, but he said, there is something that we must know. When you look at what scripture says about heaven, you must know that those who had an encounter and a glimpse of glory, the colors they saw are nothing like the colors we see. The food that they tasted, nothing like what we taste. They didn't want to come back. So even though they had loved ones or children back here, they didn't want to come back because in his presence, the fullness of joy was found. Eternity is absolutely real. And then one particular story rocked my world, and I pray I can remember it right. I just get ready to wrap up here, but hang with me just for a minute. This particular guy kept flatlining on the table, and the doctor would, you know, shock him, and he would come back. And when he would come back, he would gasp and grab the doctor's arm, saying, I was in hell. Don't let me go back there. Pray with me. And he's like, I don't believe in God. And he's like, God is real. Pray with me. And he'd flatline. And he'd come back and gasp. I think he did that three, four times in hell. He said, unimaginable torment. You can't get away from every bad choice. And God is real. Pray for me. And this doctor kept saying, man, I don't believe in God. And he said, he's real. Pray. I need to receive Jesus. Pray with me. And the man accessed a memory from Sunday school. Sunday school teachers, your role is so important. <laughs> Telling you what. He accessed a memory from Sunday school and he led this guy to Christ. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. He led him. And the guy flatlined one more time and came back. Joyful. And he lived. And the doctor was so undone by this experience, he became a Christian and then became a pastor. And then, this is really amazing, he went and found that guy because he's like, I gotta look him up. I gotta just, I wanna know what he saw. And he said, you saw hell. You said hell is real and it's the most unimaginable place of torment, absent from God. Tell me more. And he goes, I don't have any memory of that. I only remember seeing the face of Christ before I came back. Amazing. John Burke says, Earth is a compressed time capsule. Taste of heaven and taste of hell. And one day they're going to pull apart. And those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our sins will be remembered no more. He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. We're going to be healed. And the life review that we're going to have will be every move prompted by our faith. But those who reject Christ's salvation and reject his grace... Their best days are only on earth. And in hell, hell is real. And there'll be a life review that they can't get away from because they'll be forced to reckon with all the sin that they wanted to carry and not trust Jesus for. The thing is, if we dumb down heaven and hell, we're not gonna feel an urgency for the lost or an expectancy about heaven and we'll become earthbound creatures. But the Bible says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. If we dumb down hell and heaven and don't think much about it, even though the Bible says fix your eyes on what is unseen, we're going to dress up ourselves, put fluffy pillows in there, make it happy, comfortable, comfortable in our captivity. 
And what is accomplished that way? Nothing. We'll numb our restlessness with excess and entertainment when we have a profound opportunity to live eternity now. The kingdom of God starts now. It is wise in the storm to worship God in spirit and in truth, being honest about your need because he already knows it and wants to meet you. It's wise to apprehend your identity and hang on to it. It's wise to stand on scripture because it's true than when it doesn't feel true. And it's brilliantly wise to keep eternity in mind.